This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. So a few um, logistical items first. I wrote up a website address here. And um, it's sort of a unique uh, course server because you don't need to have a Stanford ID to be able to use it. So I'm going to, you know, as, as time goes on, I'm sure that some of you will send me interesting things that you'd like other people to see. I have several interesting things that I think it'd be interesting for you to read. So I'll post some of that stuff up here. And then all uh, notes or slides or things like that that I use, I'll, I'll post on there as well. And I'll just leave it, I mean, it'll be there at least, you know, for the foreseeable future. So uh, you're welcome to, to sort of treat it as public material um, insofar as you wish. Um, if I do ever come across something which I can't post publicly, uh, if it's copyrighted or something like that, then I'll copy it and bring it to class and, and distribute it to you. But otherwise, most of the stuff that we're going to use, you know, I'll reference a few uh, popular articles and otherwise um, largely uh, slides and, and some other discussions. So uh, most of it should be available here. Um, it's also an easy way for me to stay in touch with you if there's any course announcements. I'm going to add everyone who's registered to the email list on here. Um, and that way, if, you, uh, you know, if, if you're wondering um, uh, about any, you know, class announcements or anything, I would suggest that the easiest way to stay in touch with me as well as stay on top of what's, what's uh, upcoming is um, just uh, read your email off that. Okay, um, and other logistics. This is my email address, my first name, dot my last name, uh, at stanford.edu, and definitely the easiest way to reach me. Um, and uh, in particular, uh, I have an office phone number on my website, but it is something I check about once every two weeks, so don't recommend using that. This is much, much faster. Uh, and uh, the reason I put this up here is, is sort of to, to delineate kind of what my background was. As I mentioned, I had a PhD in electrical engineering. But actually, at Stanford, my primary appointment is in a department called management science and engineering, which is exactly sort of the position that it fills in the engineering school is exactly that it's a collection of people who are thinking about, who, who essentially have engineering backgrounds, but think about uh, interaction with uh, systems that involve economics in particular, as well as uh, social aspects. So. Uh, it's sort of an interesting hybrid collection of people that, that I think are exactly positioned to deal with the types of issues this class raises. Okay, and then I just mentioned the website. Um, of course, I'm going to post this on the website, but that's not going to help you get the link unless you had it already. So, um, And the other thing, yeah, as, as I said, you know, handouts and links will all be there. Um, if anyone, you know, I, I, uh, I understand that, um, uh, that for mo some people, there, there may be sort of, you know, issues of um, technology availability and so on. And if that is an issue for anyone, then you know, please come speak to me after the lecture, and we'll arrange a way that this isn't something that turns out to be an impediment. But, but, um, but otherwise, uh, th this will certainly be a, a convenient place to get everything. OK. So with that, uh, I think we can get started. Um, I, I think, uh, oh, actually, one other thing I should mention. So you may be wondering what this thing is dangling off my ear. And uh, there's an iTunes project at Stanford where they record uh, some of the continuing studies lectures and post them on iTunes University, I think it's called, or iTunes U. And um, so this, this quarter, I guess, this will be one of the lectures that they're, one of the courses that they're going to be posting there. If you haven't seen it, it's actually quite nice. You can get a whole range of interesting material there. So I encourage you to take a look. Um, and partly because of that, uh, so you know, what I'm going to aim for is about 75 to 80 minutes or so of, of lecturing. Uh, I'll put a break in there in between. And then you know, sprinkle discussion in during the lecturing as well as hopefully have some uh, more extended discussion at the end of the at the end of the class, okay. And uh, I always welcome interruptions um, and challenge anything that I say on the slides that you 
have personal experience with or otherwise that, that you may disagree with. I think the class is partly meant to just get us thinking about the issue as much as it is for me to tell you uh, what I know. Um, many of you have a lot more experience than I do, so uh, I hope that, that I learn as much as, as you will. Okay, so this is kind of how I see the class. I think, first of all, let's just look at the last phrase, which is the technology of the internet and the economics and policy that will shape the future of the network. And again, to get back to this point that I raised, from my perspective, what's interesting is that I don't think either enough uh, policymakers or economists realize how much technology influences those two elements, nor do I think engineers understand how much technology influences those two elements. So as much as we're going to be talking in this class about exactly where the internet is headed, we're also going to be spending a decent amount of time just thinking about when does technology influence these things, right? and how does it do so. And as a result, hopefully if you're a technologist, then you understand you know, how your technology is situated in an economic and policy framework, and vice versa. If you're someone interested in the policy side, then you hopefully understand a bit more about where the technology is coming from and how to guide it and shape it to sort of develop the regulatory framework that you think you'd like for the future. Um, I think it's important to start with sort of a, a ridiculous question at some level, considering that we all use the internet all the time, which is, what is the internet? And uh, I say this not, not because I'm being facetious or anything. I mean, I, I do think it's a reasonable question. If you ask people to define what the internet is, despite the fact that we interac interact with it on a daily basis, I think it's not easy to give sort of a one-sentence answer of what the internet is. Okay, so that was kind of... The goal here is to just put it into, in, into very crisp terminology. What do we think the internet is? Now, there's a lot of things I could write down. I mean, one thing, for example, that's obviously missing here, you know, I haven't read it yet, but what's missing, certainly applications. Okay, so you know, where does Google fall in this list of things that I put up here? It's not really on here. And that's not suggesting that Google is not part of the internet, but I want to fix the definition at this so that at least in the, you know, in the near term for this lecture, we can talk about the network itself rather than the things that run on top of it. Okay, so let's, let's think of what this definition is saying. It's a global network, first of all. This is an important point because much of the Internet's modern evolution has been shaped by the United States. Um, yet, the fact that it's a global network has sort of very interesting ramifications. In fact, if you just want to run a social experiment and think of how would the Internet have evolved under different policy architectures, you actually, it's just good enough to look around the globe because there's many, many different regulatory uh, approaches to governing the internet inside different countries. Right? The internet the, inside the US has a very unique evolution, but inside other countries it's, it's a bit more uh, sort of routine, a bit more like a standard utility. Right? So um, I'll hopefully try to say a few words about that maybe next lecture, but the global aspect is critical. Okay, next thing is that it's a network of networks. It's not actually just one network. It's a network of independently owned and operated networks. Now, that's again critical and is going to drive almost entirely what we talk about next lecture, which is the economics of the modern internet infrastructure. And this is again a fact that I think we read about a lot. So I think we're all familiar with the fact that, you know, there's providers like Comcast and SBC that deliver access internet service, AOL, and that uh, there's other providers that you know, are, are used to ship data across country or across, uh, across oceans. Um, but I think that's sort of more at a newspaper level, but when we really get down to nuts and bolts, I don't think most of us think on a day-to-day -day basis about the fact that something that we're sending is actually moving across multiple networks that are completely independently owned. It's actually a, a minor miracle that something that you send from your desktop at home ever makes it to where it's going, because it has to move across potentially five networks that are completely independently owned. 
the fact that they all got together and agreed to deliver that packet is, I think, some, somewhat of a miracle. And so, you know, one thing that we want to ask is, is that miracle sustainable? Okay, so that's, that's a major question of this course. Um, the last two parts are a bit more technical, okay? And, and these are the things we're going to spend some time talking about today, uh, putting this sort of in layman's terms, what do these things mean? The internet is distinguished from other telecommunications networks, so for example, telephone network, because of the specific technology that it uses. So when it was created, the real revolution was that it used what's called packet switching technology, and we'll talk about what that is. And since then, the modern internet is really defined by a common language, the TCP IP protocol suite, that's used by all networks that are interconnected through it. Okay? So there's a lot of networks actually that run completely proprietary um, uh, protocol suites. And when you see the word protocol suite, just replace that with language. So every network speaks a language. For two networks to connect together, they must speak the same language. And there's no particular reason why a network that you designed and implemented had to speak TCP IP, the language the internet speaks. And in fact, in the modern world, there's many networks that don't speak TCP IP. Probably one of the most prominent examples is that uh, the US military, of course, um, has many networks that do run um, TCP IP, but also has many proprietary networks developed uh, partly in conjunction with academia that bear no relationship to, to this protocol suite. And as a result, they're not really part of the internet as such. Okay? So today's internet is defined by, I think, these three features as far as the network itself is concerned. Now, again, I mean, I'm just listing three things of which at least two probably mean not very much to some of you. And so I, I think part of the lecture is to just make sure that this is something we're all on a common language with. So we'll, we'll do that later. Um, now, as far as packet switching, uh, you know, this is really what packet switching is about. Packet switching is sort of like um, the mail system like the, the sort of snail mail, the regular mail system. The, the key thing in packet switching is that you break all data into fundamental units called packets. Right? So um, an example might be that a packet is something that you send to a website requesting the homepage of someone else on that website. Right? Um, or uh, a sort of more um, sophisticated example might be that a, 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 a piece of data you want to send is actually an entire video file. Now, in that case, typically what will happen is the video file is broken into very small chunks, each of which is a packet, and then those are all injected into the network uh, one by one and sent ostensibly towards the destination. All right? So packet switching refers to the fact that the network is responsible for making sure that each of these packets eventually make their way to the destination. Right? We're going to talk about exactly how much the, the network is responsible for. Is the network actually make, uh, responsible for guaranteeing delivery? or for just doing the best it can to deliver. There's a big distinction between those two things. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But for, to, to start with, packet switching refers to this basic fact. Okay? Are there any questions or anything like that? L let me actually, you know, maybe it's, it's useful to, I guess, set, set, some, set some understanding for myself. How many of you have heard of packet switching before? Okay, that's pretty good, actually. That's good, that's good. Okay, good, so. It's like the post office would run where you could write, send anything you want, yeah, and actually, uh, let, let me expand on that a bit. That's a very interesting point. So, th so the comment was that uh, it's like the post office where you can send as many postcards as you want, as long as you include, um, and actually, to be honest, in the internet, this information, where it came from, is not actually something that's typically checked. What's really checked is where it's going to. This is a lot like the return address on an envelope not being checked. Okay. Now, I want to get to this point about postcards. I think you said that you, know, you can send as many postcards as you want as long as it fits on the postcard. 
Actually, it's really interesting to note that the internet doesn't necessarily put any constraints on how large a packet has to be. There's actually a very wide range of packet sizes that can be used. Actually, how much data do you put into a single packet? And if you think about it, there's a, there's a real cost to using packets. So what is the cost? For every packet that you have, only some subset of it is used for data. The rest is just control information to figure out where the packet is going. And that's all wasted. So if this turns out to be half of the packet, then you're basically throwing away half the capacity of the network, just reading this information all the time. So there's sort of an incentive to have larger packets. The problem with larger packets becomes the larger they get, the more likely it is you're sort of clogging up links or may not even be able to feed the whole thing into the system at once. A lot like if you had a massive package, may not be able to push it through the mail, uh, you know, through the mail slot at once. Okay? So, so there's an interesting trade-off here you know, so with the postcard analogy, which is that you actually have many sizes of postcards you can use, and, and there's some question as to what a, what a good size will be. But we won't spend much time uh, on, on the actual size. Okay, so just a, a quick illustration here. Um, when you request a page from a website, um, uh, you know, the, the page will be broken into many packets, and what do the packets do? They travel into some cloud. The cloud is made up of, of boxes that are, for our purposes, we'll, we'll just call them routers. Um, I'll, you know, if, if I get the chance, I'll try to distinguish between a router and a switch at some point, but I, I don't want to do that just yet. Um, so a router is an, a node inside the network which is not originating any traffic or asking for any traffic, but is just responsible for forwarding traffic, for sending it on towards the destination. In this case, this router receives packets from the website, looks at the, the uh, this is called the destination address, and says, well, it's going to the website, Oh, actually, I guess hmm, this should be flipped. So it's going to uh, my computer and says, well, what's, what's the path that I have to my computer? For purposes of illustration, let's suppose this was the path that it had. So it forwards packets and forwards them again from here to here, and that's how you get your packets. Okay? Now, there's a lot of miracles going on here. Exactly how is it that this router knew to send it to this router to get it to you? And we'll talk about that in a second. But that's kind of the core of packet switching. Packet switching has little pieces of data, sends them on to routers, and routers move packets around between themselves until eventually you find a router which is adjacent to the destination, which sends it to the destination. Okay? Many of us actually have routers these days at home. If any of you have you know, wireless access points at home today, they're typically sold with effectively a router, an internet router. And that's, that's what it does. If you connect multiple computers to the router, the router received packets from the internet and then forwards them on to whichever computer it was actually destined for. There's lots of interesting technologies there. Um, again, hopefully in the third lecture, we'll get to what's called network address translation, which is one of the ways that the internet really breaks sort of the original specification of, of packet switching and packet routing. But again, for today, I'm going to keep it sort of at the relatively basic level. Okay, so as I said, um, packet switching is like the mail system. And what this means in a technical sense, in a sort of engineering sense, is that there's not really any guarantee of when or in what order packets are going to arrive. Okay, and this is what I meant when I said, how much is the network really responsible for? One thing I should add to this is there's not even any guarantee of if packets will arrive. So the fact that you inject packets into the network comes with basically no guarantee at all in a modern internet. Okay? There's no guarantee of if they will arrive, there's no guarantee of when they will arrive, and there's no guarantee of what order they're going to arrive in. Which again, I think, from the perspective of the end user experience, it is somewhat amazing that the thing works as well as it does. Um, by contrast, and, and the usual contrast a telecommunications engineer will make is between packet switching and what's called circuit switching. And circuit switching is basically the traditional telephone system, where, uh, and literally, if, if you, you, know, see, you, see, you see old pictures in the uh, Bell Systems Journal 
from like the 1940s of switchboards, of old switchboards. And these, you know, in, in, in a switchboard, you literally had someone who was plugging cables in from a source to a destination. So you, you know, you'd, be, you'd, you'd sort of be in a city, you would call into the switchboard and say, I want to make a call out to Boston. There'd be a, literally a cable plugged in into the switchboard from your line into the outgoing line that heads towards Boston. And then they place a call into the Boston switching office and say, well, he wants to place a call to this person. Try and see if they can set the, uh, another cable up from your end, the endpoint of your line up to that person's line. And then finally the phone would ring on their end and, and you'd have a connection. Now that connection was a hard wire from you to the destination. Okay? And furthermore, for the duration of the time you were making your call, that wire was there. No one could take that away. And as much capacity in a sort of you know, data sense as you could ship through, that wire was yours. Nobody else could use that while you were using it. Okay? So um, around, you know, let's say, late uh, uh, mid-80s or so, um, and, and especially accelerating from there into, into the early 90s, uh, many, more and more people started to acquire modems. And modems, uh, you know, modem stands for modulator, demodulator. It's a piece of equipment that translated from digital data to uh, transmission over telephone lines. That's, for our purposes, let's think of it as, as a box that did that. And what that meant was, now suddenly, if you could set up a physical connection between the sender and the receiver, you had your own kind of pipe running through the internet that no one else could touch. And now you did have guaranteed delivery. Now you knew whatever you shipped into that pipe was going to come out the other end because it is your own circuit. Okay? So one of the big arguments about, about the internet was, well, you know, why, why do we need something which switches packets instead of something that switches circuits, like the telephone system? Why can't we just have a telephone system for data services so that when you want to send or receive data, you effectively, you know, quote unquote, pick up your phone and say, I'd like to send or receive data to this destination and, and, and uh, you know, set up the connection and use it as long as you need to use it and then hang up when you're done. So, so I don't know, th this is a, a useful, I think, thing to think about for a second. Does anyone have any suggestions as to you know, why, why, is it, why is it a good idea to use a packet switching network, if at all? Efficiency, okay. Um, you can use the capacity much, much better instead of uh, having the circuit switch sitting there, people listening to each other breathe. That's exactly, yeah, so, so that, I think that's um, certainly the answer. I, I mean, when I was, uh, you know, growing up as an academic anyway, going through school, that's certainly the answer that I was expected to give was, was, that, was exactly that one. It's exactly the, uh, the right answer in that sense from the, from the engineering standpoint is that circuit switching has the property that, yes, you do have guaranteed sort of capacity for the, the time the connection set up, but what about when you're not using it? You know, so what if you started this connection and then you just went off to watch a TV show for three hours and then come back, and in the meantime, you're just wasting all this capacity in the network because nobody else gets to use it. So packet switching in principle is more efficient because it's making sure that different people can use the network uh, sort of to its maximum capacity. But um, there's a couple of things about this debate that I want to point out. So one comes back to this issue of the packet header. Okay? And this was a debate that carried on for a little while, which is that the header, you know, this is the to and from, takes up space along with other data in the packet. And, and the more space that takes up, the more you're wasting on each packet. Whereas if you had just one connection, you wouldn't need to waste all that space. You just you know, send your data straight through. You don't need any to or from address in your data because you already have the connection set up. Um, but the other interesting thing about this is how much the modern internet's middle is representing circuit switching. That's really an interesting thing about this, okay? Um, what's that? Oh, no, 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 that's fine. I, I encourage... Uh, 
Oh, right. So, well, okay. So actually, that's an interesting point. I, uh, I'll let you. I'll let you raise that in a second uh, about sonnet. Um, what, what I meant more was uh, just from if you observe what's happening in the middle of the network. So typically, what happens today is that for traffic that's shipped between very uh, uh, across very long distances, it's typically shipped across a fiber optic network. Okay, and um, in that fiber optic network, what will happen is, let's say you're looking at New York and San Francisco. Now, there is an enormous amount of traffic that goes between New York and San Francisco. And not only that, the amount of traffic is so high that if you were a network provider, you can devote uh, what's called one wavelength on a fiber. So from our purposes, let's just think of that as one very large pipe running straight from New York all the way to San Francisco. And just keep that there and never change it and ensure that any traffic that comes into New York and that's headed remotely in the, in the neighborhood of San Francisco is always sh uh, shuttled straight down that pipe. Now, if you think about the description I just gave you, that sounds an awful lot like circuit switching. It sounds like there's a circuit set up from New York to San Francisco that seems to just constantly be running traffic between New York and San Francisco and never anywhere else. That capacity is never used for anything else. So this actually is sort of renewed calls for uh, a distinction between using packet switching in access networks, so around the very ends of the network where you and I use, use our desktops, and using circuit switching in the middle of the network. Because so much traffic, that there, between um, certain city pairs, there's so much traffic that you can almost count on the fact that you're not going to be wasting capacity if you set up a circuit. So there's a very interesting research project at Stanford which is related to this. Uh, the the pro project is called Dynamic Circuit Switching, which is essentially trying to think of a way that you leverage circuit switching technology, but for the core, the middle of the network, where you have these very large aggregation, uh, this very large aggregation of traffic, but then allow some dynamic flexibility to change the circuits when, when it seems like it's a sensible thing to do so, for example, in the presence of failures. So I guess the reason I make this point is because I want you to understand that you know, the, the way, I, it's certainly true for me, the way that you learn packet switching and circuit switching in a telecoms class is as if there's some sort of you know, uh, uh, set dogma that uh, circuit switching is inherently inefficient relative to packet switching. Um, but on the other hand, the reality of the world is not nearly that crisp. The reality is that there are times when packet switching looks very much like circuit switching. And conversely, there's actually times when circuit switching looks very much like packet switching. Um, I won't get into too many technical examples of that, but it's possible to set up uh, that, that side of the world as well. Actually, sorry, so I just saw you walked in. I'm in principle responsible for checking against the class list, so I, I, should, I should... Oh, okay, great. And, uh, and, and then on, more on the interest side, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about uh, your background and sort of your interest in the material. Okay. Real estate and corporate, and basically, I use the computer for email, and I've learned how to turn it on and off, and that's about it. Ah, okay, that's good. We've got a so so. I was just discussing exactly, uh, you know, sort of modulating between different uh, technical backgrounds. So that'll be an interesting and fun thing in this course. Um, so uh, uh, we were just going over um, the fact, uh, uh, the two main facts, just to sort of bring you quickly up to speed. One is that the internet breaks everything into fundamental atomic units called packets. And the other is that the internet uses packet switching technology, which is effectively determining how to move these packets around to get to the ends of the network, uh, get around the ends of the network. Okay, so moving on from here. The last piece of that definition is the TCP IP suite. Uh, I said that the internet is a global network of networks that uses packet switching technology and the TCP IP protocol suite. We're going to talk a lot more about this, so I won't say too much right now. Um, just what the acronyms stand for and what they're used for. 
So TCP is the transmission control protocol that's used for end-to-end -end reliability. And this is an important phrase because you notice I emphasized that the internet itself, the network, does not guarantee reliability. It doesn't say, I'm going to deliver your packets for sure. You can ship them in if you want, but the internet doesn't say, I'm going to make sure they get there. So it's actually a, it's a protocol that runs between your computer and your destination on the other side of the network, which ensures that transmissions are reliable. The packets you put in actually make it out to the other side. Right? It's a very important thing to understand that the network itself is not responsible for liability in the modern internet. It's only the end systems that are responsible for liability. And that I think, again, I mean, I, I keep referring to these very interesting sort of minor miracles that take place, but I do think it's somewhat remarkable that you can build software and it's install it only at the ends of the network and still ensure reliable delivery when the underlying substrate, the network itself, is not guaranteeing you anything. Right? And that's one of the, it really is one of the biggest innovations that guided the, the, the structure of the modern internet. Now, together with that is the substrate of the network itself, and that's packet routing, that's governed by the internet protocol. So we'll talk about both of these things. They really are, these protocols and other associated protocols in this suite are really the core functionality of the internet, and you know, we'll return back to that sort of in the later part of this lecture. Okay, so brief history. Um, the internet started in 1969. I think many of us know a vague sort of account of this history through, through, uh, through um, anecdotal, I guess, uh, uh, collection. It's often in newspaper articles you read things about the, the origins of the internet as a defense network. So uh, in 1969, uh, ARPA, which is at that point was the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, their acronym was just ARPA, later changed to DARPA, uh, commissioned a network which was to be built on packet switching technology. And that meant breaking uh, data into pieces, uh, little packets. 1972 is when internetworking was first introduced. Internetworking refers to connecting together uh, networks into a larger network. And why, this is, you know, why is this such a hard thing to do? It doesn't seem like it's complicated. You seem like just plug a few wires in and you've got a network of networks. But where this really comes in is the language issue. The important thing is how do you create a common language underneath that different networks you're connecting together can speak? And, and it seems odd in retrospect, but this was a huge revolution in the way that the internet evolved. The idea that there was a common language that every network should speak made it so easy to connect together new networks. There was no problem doing so. And so as, as the internet evolved, it, it became clear that that underlying common language would be this TCP IP suite and in particular, in 1983, DARPA adopted TCPIP for the ARPANET. Now, as the internet evolved further, um, or as, as, the, as the history evolved further, uh, what happened is that the National Science Foundation was developing an academic network for use by universities and researchers. And that network was called the NSFNet. And NSF also adopted TCPIP for that network. Now, it, it quickly happened that the NSFNet was growing, uh, was growing very rapidly. And because it was speaking the same language as the ARPANET, many uh, computers that were hooked into the, those networks could speak to each other. Right? And um, as this network was growing, the NSF did a very interesting thing. And there's, there's, so there's an article called A Brief History of the Internet that I'll post that was written by uh, sort of the major players in the evolution of the internet over the past uh, 30, 35 years or so. And um, uh, in that article, you know, one of the interesting facts that they note is that as the NSF net was evolving, they actually encouraged regional uh, networks that were connected to the NSF net to seek out commercial customers. But they explicitly prohibited any long-haul carriage of commercial traffic. Now think about that for a second. That's very interesting because 
suddenly you've got commercial traffic entering the network, but there's no long-haul provision for that traffic. So, so why, would the internet, why would the NSF do that? Seems like an odd thing to do. Where's the traffic going to go? Well, the NSF's goal was that, what's that? Sorry? What can it do, right? So what the NSF was trying to do was to incentivize the creation of long-haul providers. So because commercial traffic was entering, but it was prohibited from operating on, and I'm, you know, I'm exaggerating both the, uh, the, uh, you know, the extent to which it was prohibited as well as um, this uh, sort of regional ability to, to incorporate commercial traffic, but so, so the story is, is consistent, which is that although commercial traffic was coming in, it was not allowed to use the NSF backbone. Well, the only alternative was now there was a market. There's a market for long-haul providers. And this is how independent providers grew, even though there was this, this, this uh, regulated, uh, regulated internet running across the country. Now, now, the reason I'm emphasizing this is because, first of all, as NSFnet grew larger and larger, in 1990, the ARPANET was decommissioned, and NSFnet sort of was the primary piece of the internet. And, and there's a lot of other networks that were hooked into the NSFnet as well, and I'm, I'm, not, you know, I'm not dwelling on the rest of them. But in 1995, the NSF ceased operating the NSFnet backbone. Okay? And the reason it could do that is because over time, there had become this sort of competitive landscape of providers that were operating uh, on a long-haul basis, delivering packets across, across the entire internet backbone. And so the NSF saw that at this point, there was not really any need for regulation at the backbone level. And this started a, an incredible uh, sequence of events, I think. You know, the last um, 12 years of the Internet's evolution, I don't think, I don't think people appreciate sort of how close I, the, the Internet came to just sort of completely dissolving as a network of networks. Because when this happened, notice now there was nobody sitting up there kind of backstopping the whole thing, saying there's always going to be connectivity across the entire Internet. At this point, it was up to the vagaries of the free market to make sure that there always was connectivity. You can kind of equate this to saying that, um, you know, uh, at some point we just turned the keys to the water distribution system over to a collection of free market providers. And it's not surprising that if you did that, you might expect that there would be portions of, let's say, San Francisco or Palo Alto or the Bay Area that would just not have water because it wouldn't really be useful to invest in water to those areas. And you see that, you know, we're going to talk a lot more about this ne next lecture, but this decision triggered the modern sort of deregulated internet era and triggered the market architecture that the current internet operates in. So this is what we'll spend most of next lecture talking about, starting from this point. So that's where we got to today. The internet is now a federation of thousands of independently owned and operated networks, and we refer to these networks as autonomous systems, or uh, ASs. Now this is a bit of a uh, stretch. Uh, autonomous system is a technical term that's used, and it's convenient for reasons you'll see in the next few slides, I don't want to keep using the word network to refer to these guys. Um, but the reason it's a bit of a stretch is because oftentimes the same service provider may have several AS numbers, uh, say several IDs uh, of autonomous systems. And um, the reason for that might be that the same service provider has presence in Europe and in the United States, uses different IDs for both of those. Um, other cases are mergers. So when SBC merged with AT&T, they each initially had different numbers and preserved them even after they were merged. Uh, they didn't uh, suddenly absorb one number. But that's a technical detail. For our purposes, this is a fine abstraction. Now, one of the things I want you to do is, as, as we go through the next few slides is realize that what an autonomous system is. And so, as far as I define it here, it's just a piece, a piece of the network. Okay? It's, it's, it's something that 
kind of owns multiple nodes and so on as, as part of the network and links between them. But what I want you to see is that an autonomous system need not be a network in the sense that we usually think about it. Okay. Um, so the first thing we're going to, 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 um, to just emphasize is the fact that the internet is connected at all rests on a system of bilateral contracts. And again, it just keeps sort of getting surprising to me as I learned these things that, okay, first of all, um, the internet used to be a network that was, you know, uh, centrally managed, uh, US-wide. And then we went from that to just trusting the entire network to this sort of deregulated environment. And not only that, we didn't even provide any central clearinghouse for them to contract with each other. So it's, you know, it's, it's even more surprising this would be like saying that not only did you turn the keys to the water system over to a collection of independent players, but you also asked them to talk to each other to figure out how to get water from one point to another. You didn't even provide a central like, customer service center or something for them to deal with. Okay? This is effectively barter. There's no exchange through which the network providers connect to each other, no sort of stock exchange in that sense that they connect to each other. They just literally you know, pick up the phone, go to board meetings, and, and make connections to each other. And in spite of that, in spite of the sort of primitive economy that they operate in, they, con you know, they, they have a very rich system of contracts that are more than enough to make sure that all of us can reach the rest of the internet. Okay? And again, more on this next lecture. So as an example of this, you know, one thing that's instructive to do as part of this class, I think, is to go home and, and if you do have a contract with a service, actually, I mean any service provider, whether it's uh, modem, uh, whether it's cable, whether it's DSL, just take a look at the contract that you have with that service provider. Just see what the terms are. What is it exactly that they said they're selling you? You take it for granted that they're selling you internet access. But in the context of this course, you need to start asking yourself, what is internet access? What exactly are they guaranteeing me? I mean, after all, the network doesn't guarantee me anything. The network doesn't say my packets will be delivered. The network doesn't say they'll get there on time. The network doesn't say that, that, uh, that they won't be lost. Or, uh, sorry, that, um, um, that they, won't be, they won't arrive out of sequence or anything. So, so what exactly is Comcast guaranteeing me? Now, I'll give you, you know, some, some hints on this. The kinds of clauses you should look for are, you know, what happens if the link goes down? So let's suppose your internet service is down. Does anybody know, by the way, what happens? Let's suppose that you're, you're well, okay, I mean, besides, <laughs> besides the obvious answers of what, what goes wrong when your internet's down, but uh, uh, if your internet goes down, uh, what does Comcast say they'll do? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, that's what I actually mean. Your connection or, or someone's Oh, I mean, um, yeah, so, so, you know, just let's make it more concrete. Uh, I mean, I live in San Francisco. Right, so I live in San Francisco, and, and on Friday, uh, two, three weeks ago, I guess, the San Francisco Water Department took a backhoe through my cable internet line, okay? And, I mean, it's actually been a, it's a really sort of shocking jolt at some level, because you take it for granted that this thing is there, and to think that the actual cable was just cut in the ground is really sort of a shocking realization. And, and, uh, and it couldn't get fixed until uh, Monday morning. This was on a Friday. It couldn't get fixed until Monday. So I went two days without any, without any internet access, so... Uh, what did Comcast say they would do? Anybody, anybody have any ideas? I guess it would probably be a best efforts, but not to the truly guarantee. I would be surprised. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's right. So the question is, how much liability will they assume? Now, you're right. Since the internet on the other side of them is unreliable, it would be unreasonable for Comcast to say, I'm going to guarantee all your packets make it. So, but in their clause, they do have some level of liability that they assume, and it's partly a customer service issue. They say that, uh, at least, you know, this was in the, the contract that I had from them, um, it said that if, if you experience outages of a 24-hour period or more in any month of service, they'll reimburse you on a prorated basis for the, for the outage that you experience, which doesn't turn out to be that much, really. But uh, certainly didn't cover the cost of the Internet Cafe while I was working that day. Um, so so it's, um, 
So, so there are clauses in these contracts. On the other hand, you will see that they do not guarantee anything about things like delay. How long is your packet going to take to get to its destination? Or loss, or any of these things. Okay? They explicitly exempt themselves from liability from, from that, because there, there's no way they can control what the network is going to do on the other side. I really think it's useful, if you haven't looked at this before, in light of this course, you may find it interesting to go back and take a look at some of that fine print. It's inter interesting to think about what they can and can't guarantee. And this is one of the biggest problems with the modern internet, is what we can and can't guarantee. Okay, so um, a quick survey of what an autonomous system might be. It can certainly be more than, than you think. Um, network service providers, content providers, content delivery networks, enterprise networks. We'll run through some of these in turn. So a network service provider I'm going to refer to as someone who literally delivers the service of connectivity. So this guy's job is to take data from you and make sure it can reach somewhere else. Okay, you can think of them as like the FedEx or the mail system of the, of the internet. Okay? So what do they provide? Well, there's, broadly speaking, there's a classification into three tiers. And the specification of the three tiers I'm giving here is not exact. Uh, next lecture, we're going to learn some new terminology that helps us make this a bit more precise. But for now, it's OK to start with this taxonomy. Tier one is considered to be providers that sort of have uh, uh, very wide global uh, or, or national connectivity. And the um, common suspects here are, are firms like AT&T and Sprint and Level 3, Cogent, so on. Um, again, we'll see more about this next lecture. Tier 2 is sort of somewhere between Tier 1 and 3, which is usually something that's sort of a, a regional provider, but you know, not, a, not a national scale necessarily, but not really uh, local to a municipality or anything. Um, but th again, this is, this is a very, very coarse definition. I mean, a, a very weak definition. It doesn't really capture a lot of other things uh, that, that should, at some level, fit into Tier 2. So we'll see that next lecture. And Tier 3 is, is something that's a bit more crisp, which is usually referred to as an access provider. And this is someone whose job is to sell access to the internet. Okay? So these are providers. And, and this fits, I think, our intuition. I should add, by the way, when AT&T and SBC merged, you had Tier 1 and Tier 3 merging with each other. So this isn't a strict hierarchy anymore in the way that we want to think about it. It's not like it goes from big to medium to small. Sometimes big and small get together and merge. And, and SBC wasn't really that small. So you, you know. You should be careful not to think of this either in terms of a, a gradation of size or in terms of some hierarchy across the, the entire internet. Yeah? So as an individual, you'd be contracting with tier three and they in turn would Typically, that's, that's, um, that's the sort of chain of reasoning that you would see, exactly. Exactly, yeah. So, so for example, uh, again, Comcast or SBC or, or Stanford, even if you're uh, a Stanford campus resident. Um, will have contracts with other providers who bear the responsibility of delivering traffic for them. Potentially, there may be another link in that chain and, and, and so on. So we'll see what that system of contracts looks like in a bit more detail next lecture. That's something I really want to spend some time on. Yeah? Uh, the first two of Tier 1 are phone providers. And yeah. I remember about, <coughs> about 10 years ago that they were talking about incredible excess capacity being laid out. Right. Was that the, the way it got you mean sorry was that how they switched to a data network service from being a f traditionally a phone no actually um, I, I think that uh, the ramp up in capacity was actually deliberately done to match uh, a perceived expansion in data services and um, of course you know the the predicted rates which was effectively that internet traffic was doubling every hundred days did not come to materialize uh, this is actually, there's an interesting article about the doubling every 100 days that I'll post, uh, post online. Um, 
you know, one theory has that it was a myth perpetuated by MCI WorldCom um, that you know suggested it was doubling every hundred days, just kept buying capacity, and then uh, you know, and then um, forced everyone else in the market to keep up, basically. Um, so you know, at some level, I think it was a response to perceived expansion in internet traffic that they had to meet. Now, that expansion, just as an aside, I will say that the, the, the expansion of, of uh, capacity at that time, over, you know, this is preceding the internet bubble, in, in, or the, the, sort of the fall of the bubble in 2000, 2001, um, really is a major reason why the internet is functioning so crisply today. So basically, bankruptcy law in the United States, and, and maybe you, know, y you can help me uh, um, with this, but my, so my understanding um, uh, of, of what has happened in this cycle is that Due to bankruptcy protections afforded and, and the liquidation of the capacity assets that are required by these companies, you effectively were able to acquire a lot of capacity on credit, then get protection from the creditors and sell it very cheaply. So someone who is now, it, it, was, it was laundering the capacity through so that someone who was operating the capacity post-bankruptcy could have gotten it for pennies on the dollar from what it originally cost with no credit risk. Right? And now, you know, that dramatically reduces the cost of running a network when suddenly you can acquire what in principle is an extremely expensive thing to dig into the ground and lay down fiber. You can acquire that for pennies on the dollar. Then suddenly, well, one of the major cost components of starting up a network goes away. And Cogent, actually one of the reasons that they've really upset most of the major players at Tier 1 is because this has been their strategy. You know, so you referred to buying up dark fiber. I mean, this is what Cogent did to build their modern business model. Uh, someone once... Uh, 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 one of the um, colleagues I have at, at a tier one provider um, told me that, so there's an annual meeting called NANOG, the North American Network Operators Group. He was talking to one of his friends from Cogent and he said that um, the, the elevator finally got fixed when the CEO got stuck in it. But until then, I mean, they were operating in this rundown building with horrible facilities, saving money on every possible front that they could, undercutting all their competitors and buying up dark fiber cheap, basically running as thin on the margin as they possibly could. Now, why could they do that? Well, because you had all this excess capacity laundered through bankruptcy. So here's one of the high-level questions that I will ask you to think about over the course of this, this four or five, le uh, five lectures is, is the right model for the internet to build out capacity at high cost, launder it through bankruptcy, and then sell it for pennies on the dollar? Because this is the model that we used over the last decade of evolution. So if that's the right model, then we're set up pretty well for the next expansion. When internet, internet video comes down the road and we need more capacity, we're, I mean, we've already primed the pump at some level. We already know that this technique works. But, of course, you know, from a public policy standpoint, I think there's good reasons why we don't want to do that. And that raises the question, you know, what, archite what architecture is sustainable, both economic and technological? Okay, so we'll come back to that as well. All right. Um, okay, so, but now we're going to get into autonomous systems that are not what you would traditionally think of as a network. Okay? And this is, again, you know, related to your point about Google buying dark fiber, I think, that you asked me of earlier. So content providers, large content providers, are actually major pieces of the network that makes up the Internet. Now, why is this? Well, as was pointed out, Google, for example, has a ton of data centers located all over the world and connected together now by a rather rich network. And they're expanding that network at a, at a ferocious clip. Now, why are they expanding their network? Well, one reason they're expanding their network is to ex insulate themselves from the risk that transmitting data between those data centers will be dependent on long-haul providers. It's ironically actually a reversion away from what the NSF did when it you know, forced people to build out long-haul networks. Um, 
Uh, Yahoo, again, Amazon, eBay, they all have sort of the same features as, as Google. Um, interestingly, if you search through the list of autonomous system numbers, you'll find all kinds of interesting things. You'll find actually relatively small organizations, organizations like the New York Times, which doesn't seem like there's any obvious reason they need to be something that's a separate autonomous system in the network. Obviously, universities like Stanford, MIT, so on, they'll all be there. Um, and the reason is they all have significant networks. They all speak the TCPIP suite, protocol suite, and they all interconnect with other networks. Therefore, by the definition, they are part of the internet. Does this imply that they, these all own fibers and So they may not all own necessarily fiber, but for example, for the New York Times, I'll, I'll take them as an example. I do know they actually do own a relatively wide network because they also have data centers. But, but let's take them as an example and sort of a, 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 a sort of, let's just um, abstract a bit. Let's pretend that they're just a big enterprise network located somewhere in New York. Well, what that enterprise network means is they may have sort of multiple office buildings that are all connected together with some, some uh, network. Stanford campus is actually a network, even though it's geographically not too diverse. And that network is rich enough um, and sort of um, uh, um, has enough independent internet nodes inside of it that we should think of it as a separate autonomous system. Now, why is your, your house not an autonomous system? Well, because from the point of view of the internet, most houses are actually just one internet node. This is actually where network address translation, or NAT, comes in. It translates from that one internet node that you're given from the internet into multiple internet nodes on the other side. So you, you can have four computers or five computers connected at home, all running through the same internet connection. But if you look at the box that you bought, you know, so a wireless router or something like this, if you, if you do some research on what a wireless router is, one of the key functionalities it provides is translating from the five different you know, names of your computers into the one number that the internet thinks you are. And when data comes in to the wireless router, one thing it does is make sure that data reaches the right computer by translating from where it came from on the internet, where it was supposed to go to on the other side. Okay? But from the internet's point of view, the rest of the internet has no idea there's five computers connected at that one router. This is one of the major sort of uh, complications, I guess, that, that netboxes uh, create, and you know, we'll, we'll see why in a second. Okay, um, other examples, content delivery networks are something that are, that are very important to understand, I think, as, as sort of part of the modern uh, internet. Uh, content delivery refers to basically, um, you know, for, for simplification, the easy way to think about it is this, that your CNN, lots of people look at CNN daily. And people look at CNN not only, you know, across the U.S., but obviously around the world. They have many, many uh, very popular sites. Um, it doesn't seem reasonable that there would be one server based in Atlanta that serves all CNN content to everyone around the world. If you can imagine, I mean, there's, there's a reasonable delay uh, to getting content around, you know, halfway around the world from, from, them, to, um, fr from them to, let's say, Asia. Um, and even beyond that, uh, there's a reasonable uh, um, cost to CNN to be able to make sure that every worldwide request can be served from that one server. So a natural strategy then would be, well, why don't we maintain two servers, one in Asia, one in the U.S., and just make sure we share data between those two servers. And then once we've got all the data over to the US, now the US server can solve all, serve all the US clients. The Asian server can solve all the, serve all the Asian clients. And once you start doing that, you think, well, why not create more of these, replicate more frequently, and get you know, closer and closer to the customer. Right? And that is what a content delivery network does. It replicates content at many places around the network. In particular, in the US, it's often what's called the NFL cities, which are you know, the, 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 I believe now it's 31 teams, the, the 31 cities uh, that, that have NFL teams, but it's a few more than that, actually, um, in terms of 
uh, what, wh where the replication is done. Um, so, so they replicate content at many locations around the internet. And then when you request content from one of these providers, it's served from the place closest to you rather than all the way from Atlanta. Okay? But it's interesting to note, their business has nothing to do with content. That is, I mean, they don't generate content. They just help other companies that have content. Which raised an interesting question in my mind. A, why didn't the company that had the content do this in the first place? And B, why didn't the network service provider do this? What, what, why was there an opportunity for Akamai or Lomlight to start a company in between? Because they neither own the content, nor do they own the network. They somehow just provide a service in the middle. Okay? We'll come back to why they can do that in a second. Next lecture again. Uh, next lecture is getting packed, I know, but, but it's amazing how much you'll learn in a short amount of time. So. Okay, and uh, last example is what's called an internet exchange. So I said before that um, there's no such thing as a... S oh, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to know, in when did um, Akamai and Limelight start? So for Akamai, it was really uh, late 90s about, was, was when they sort of took off. Um, I was a graduate student at MIT from 2000 to 2004, and right around that time, the you know, large parts of the CS department were cleaned out um, as graduate students headed over to work at Akamai. So I could virtually, virtually guarantee that's when it was. Limelight was a bit more recent phenomenon, actually. I mean, they use a slightly different model than Akamai. Akamai is really the, the sort of established standard in that industry. Um, um, yeah, does that, I don't know if that, that uh, yeah. <clears throat> that, well, actually, sorry, that, that's an interesting point about exactly how they got going, even as the boom sort of was, was tailing out. But, but um, you know, so Akamai survived reasonably well through that. Their business model didn't make a lot of money. Um, and some would argue that it actually wasn't profitable through sort of the early part of the decade, but it, they didn't lose nearly as much money as an average telecoms provider did. Okay, the last example is internet exchanges. Now these are again, uh, they're, they're major pieces of the network, but they neither provide network service nor do they create content. What they do is they just own major, uh, what are called hotels, internet hotels, where there's lots of power available and lots of space available for servers and routers, where many buyers and sellers of network service can connect to each other. So you just build a cable into this hotel, if you're a seller of network service, and suddenly you can sell to anyone else who built a cable into the hotel. Okay? There's uh, an exchange right down the street here in Palo Alto. Right? Um, there's, and, and the same company that... Um, so, so Equinix is a company based actually in Palo Alto that runs, again, exchanges in all the NFL cities in the U.S., as well as uh, um, most major destinations in Europe. Um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of cities, Seattle, Amsterdam, London, etc., have their own um, internet exchanges. And as part of the deregulation in 1995, there were four major exchanges set up around the U.S. Okay? Um, so, you know, the exchanges are kind of interesting because they seem to violate this principle that I said, that there's no sort of stock market for the internet. But it's important to re realize these are not places where sort of capacity is bought and sold, like you buy and sell stocks on the stock market. These are places only that sort of remove the physical barrier to connecting. They make it easier to connect physically. But nevertheless, contracts are bilateral. Even though you might say, so you know, okay, I'm Google, and I've built my cable into the Internet Exchange in Palo Alto, and there may be 50 other network service providers there. You may think that means that on a very fast time scale, I could buy capacity from any of them. But that's not the way it works. Even though you've built your cable there and there's 50 service providers there, you'll still typically form six-month-long contracts with the providers that you want to use, and actually, from your perspective, not even see the others that you're not using. Okay, so it's not a stock market. It's just physically simplifying the task of connecting. This is a physical connection with a package with 
Absolutely. 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 Yep. Yep. That's right. So if you look at what one of these hotels looks like, it's really amazing. Basically, the, the biggest pump for such a hotel is power. That's what they're constrained by. Again, another thing most people don't think about, but the biggest limitation on running one, you know, running a sort of major internet router or, or a piece of hardware is, is typically power. What's that? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, it's amazing uh, how much they burn through. And so there's a lot of research just on trying to reduce power consumption of these devices. But so there's, you know, major, major power plant usually at these things. And then beyond that, there's just racks and racks and racks of places where you can plop in uh, servers and routers. Now this, this isn't a content provider at all. It's just a, I mean, you, you mean the exchange is not a content provider? Right. No, no, the exchange is just there to provide space. That's basically, I mean, again, I'm simplifying a bit. Yeah. Equinix offers value-added services beyond what that. What is the equipment, the boxes in there? So, yeah, it varies. Um, at some exchanges, they'll own, so they need to own enough equipment that there's places for people to connect into. So they'll provide that equipment. But oftentimes what will happen is that uh, if you've connected in, if you've built a line to the exchange, you'll also buy hardware that you want to implant there. Um, this may be for um, reasons of, for example, you know, wanting to filter bad traffic out at the exchange before it gets to your network, variety of things like that. Um, Equinix actually offers a wide range of value-added services beyond that. Again, a very interesting website to explore if you... Uh, here's Oh, okay. So now you got me. Let's see. Where is the Palo Alto? Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, it, the physical location. So I do know... I'm not going to do anything. You know. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, actually, it's, I, I, I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll get you a better answer to that by the, okay. the next lecture. But I, I can say some interesting, sort of anecdotally anyway, um, Equinix, for example, I believe it was Dallas. I'm not sure. But there's one, one major city where, for whatever reason, they decided to plant the hotel several miles outside the city. I mean, not, maybe not outside the city, but outside from an obvious location for everyone to connect. And this just had major consequences for them. They had this huge fixed cost, but for everybody else, it was impossible to route like this extra few miles out there. I mean, it was a major cost to build out new cable. And so uh, that exchange ended up being heavily underutilized. Um, so that was, I mean, a bad business decision on their part. So the usual thing to do would be to build the exchange in sort of a natural location where there was lots of peering happening anyway. Because, you, you know, before an exchange is present, then it, sort of historically what you would see is that there's many, there's more and more providers that are coming into a common location to try to connect to each other. Or, and if that location is even remotely close, then that creates a, an opportunity to create an exchange. There's also very different business models for a lot of these. Some of them are nonprofits, some of them are cooperatives, and some of them, like Equinix, are for-profit. Um, so there's, there's very different operational uh, guidelines. But, but I'll have a better answer to this thing for you next time. That's a good question. Okay. Um, and Packet Clearinghouse actually is a company based in the Presidio in San Francisco that, or they used to be based in the Presidio, I think they, they moved to Berkeley, where they, they uh, set up internet exchanges across Asia. Um, and so it's a very interesting... Uh, it sounds like a lot of that's like local. I mean, it's run or managed or the, the concept was developed here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it is, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing that, uh, you know, the... Uh, um, you mean, certainly the cooperatives. I think Seattle, for example, runs as a cooperative. It is a very, very local thing. And it's, it's the kind of place where it's really hard to be sort of a cheater on the system. Um, uh, Equinix, on the other hand, was really sort of built from the ground up as a for-profit organization that sort of saw a profit opportunity of building these things out. Um, Packet Clearinghouse is, is a company that is a nonprofit that, that actually doesn't have any internet exchanges of its own rather just helps establish them. And so, for example, I think in uh, Indonesia, um, they've set up several, uh, Singapore maybe as well. So 
um, they, they have a you know, very interesting sort of operation where they believe that internet exchanges are very good for developing countries as a way of avoiding high fees that they have to pay to, um, to uh, get traffic. You know, so often, again, an aside, but in the early evolution of the internet, if you were sending traffic, let's say, from Singapore to Australia, you would have to send it to the U.S. and back. And so Packet Clearinghouse's idea was, well, if we can set up exchanges where many providers are going to come together regionally, uh, then those providers can contract directly with each other rather than, rather than having to ship through to a common uh, uh, provider in the U.S. that they both have a contract with. They'd save both on the transit fees here as well as on connection costs. So, yeah. When you look at the, the maps of the Internet, I'm just on Google today looking at it, it looks like an airline um, map where you show all the hubs and the, the, the lines. Yeah, lines. yeah. Is, is, is this sort of where the hubs would be? Yeah. Is that something entirely parallel? No, I think that's quite a reasonable thing. It depends what kind of a map you're looking at. Sometimes those maps are only... Yeah, so, so when, when I say it depends, what I mean is that um, sometimes the lines just say there exists a connection. It may not be that, um, what may happen is that that connection may actually involve going through some very circuitous route. Um, but, much, you know, accepting that thing, um, if you just draw a map of where fiber is located in the U.S. or worldwide, then you will see that there's these points of concentration that oftentimes are exchanges. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly in the modern internet, I would say more times than not. Are these the same thing as a, as a collection of routers and switches in a big building that does all this packet switching? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's essentially what it is, yeah. And the, there is um, one other thing that I should add to that, which is data centers. I mean, so if you're Google yeah. and you're, you know, at an Internet exchange, it's likely that you have data centers close to the Internet exchange. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, which of the, the range of different things I've mentioned. Yeah. So typically, if you're sending email, then what you've done is, let's for simplicity's sake, let's say that you're using the email service that uh, Comcast provided you. Um, so, I mean, if you sign up with Comcast, they give you an email address. So what this means is that Comcast runs what's called a mail server that accepts requests from Outlook or you know, whatever email program you're using. And, and, and when Outlook hands off data to that mail server, the mail server then accepts responsibility of trying to deliver it to where it's going. So the mail server is located inside Comcast network, and Comcast now will have a relationship with likely a network of you know, something like uh, probably Sprint or something like that. Um, I'm not sure exactly what their uh, upstream relationships are here, but let's say Sprint. Um, so the, the, the packet will then pass into Sprint's network. Sprint is responsible for carrying the, the packet or packets that make up the mail to New York City. In New York City, then the question is, what network is your lawyer connected to? Suppose your lawyer is um, working at a law firm, uh, your, your, sorry, your, your friend is working at a law firm, and the firm is using a regional DSL provider to, to connect to the internet. Mm -hmm. So in that case, um, the, the uh, packet from Sprint would likely be handed off to that regional DSL provider, then make its way to, to your client's, um, to, to the mail server that the DSL pro provider operates, and then the mail server sends it on to your client's mail program. And I said packet throughout that, but in all likelihood, an email is actually going to be multiple packets. Okay. Um, what's that? Oh, sorry. I, uh, this is actually IX, which stands for Internet Exchange. But you're right. You're right. Yeah. Actually, I wonder. So maybe at, at a break, um, I should take a break sometime soon. Um, uh, we'll. I'll, I'll try to run what's called a trace route and just show you the sequence of 
of nodes in the internet that things pass through. I'm running a bit behind though, so I think I should at least uh, finish what I wanted to say here. Okay, so some, just some high-level uh, stuff to set the goal. And, and really the goal of this, this course is to help us think, you know, I, I set it up earlier, which is, you know, what is the relationship between technology and policy? And ultimately what that comes down to is that you have all these different stake, uh, stakeholders that all want to shape where the network is headed, which really means that they all, in some sense, feel like they own part of either the network or its evolution. And the question is, you know, what exactly, you know, wh what, should that, uh, what should that future be? Um, I've left out some of those players. There's obviously us. We're major players uh, in, in this. We both have both major players because of sort of the demands that we put on the network, as well as kind of the policy, uh, um, the policy voice that we can, we can exercise. Um, hardware manufacturers, I, I, I left out because they typically don't own their own networks, so they're not autonomous systems of the sort I described. But clearly Cisco or someone like that is a huge player in this space. Governmental agencies, FCC action, NSF action, they had huge, huge influence on where the internet got to today. Standards organizations, so Wi-Fi, for example, is a standard that's developed by the Wi-Fi standards body. Um, they have a huge influence on, on what's going on. And then academia um, researchers. But what's surprising is that of all of these network engineering researchers and network engineers that work at you know, standards organizations or hardware manufacturers really aren't the ones driving the debate. It's typically people in boardrooms at hardware manufacturers rather than you know, people that are sort of... Uh, um, that come from network uh, expertise that, that, are, that are the ones that drive the debate. Okay, so here's our goal. Develop a framework by which we can evaluate the positions of these key players. Um, examples of questions I think, you know, and these are only two, but there, there's a lot of questions like this. What I mean by this is there's, there's clashes that happen all the time now between many of these different players. How should Comcast address the rise of peer-to-peer -peer file sharing? Should it embrace it? Should it shut it down? You know, in peer-to-peer file sharing, I mean here, you know, things like Napster and Kazaa. These are programs which allow individuals to share very large files across the internet, directly from my computer to yours. So this is now, uh, you know, I'm an individual user, you're an individual user, you're downloading a large file from my computer. The more individual users are doing this, the more load there is both up and down on Comcast network. How should they, you know, wh what should their response be? What should be the response of universities to things like this? Um, a different example, Netflix delivers videos through the mail right now, but if you ask their CEO what their future business plan is, it's to deliver videos over the internet. So the question is, what will it cost for Netflix to deliver video over the internet? Who should they be paying? Should they be paying anyone? Is it even a profitable strategy? Okay. And, um, you know, other, other things in this space that involve, let's say, hardware, hardware manufacturer and a cellular provider, right? So Nokia is building handsets that are going to be based on Linux. What this means is that suddenly it's possible for an end user to develop an application that can run on the handset. You know, if you think about your handsets right now, everything you run on your phone is provided by Singular or, you know, Sprint or whoever you bought your phone from. It's very, very hard to install anything that you want to install onto your phone. But when you want to install some piece of software from the internet on your computer, it's relatively easy to do. Now, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that currently cellular hardware is is uh, hmm, okay. uh, cellular hardware is a very tightly controlled uh, um, platform. It's not the kind of thing it, that's open, it's easy to install software on. Nokia developing this platform based on Linux, suddenly you can install whatever hard, uh, software you want. Is it in anyone's best interest that's a cellular provider to actually offer this piece of hardware to make it compatible with their network? Okay. 
So those are all interesting questions. Those are the kinds of things you want to keep in mind. What are the stakes of these players? What should their positions be? It's not going to be obvious. That's the point. It's not going to be obvious that Comcast's response should be shut down peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. It shouldn't be obvious that a cellular provider's response is, I'm not going to offer an open platform. Okay? Why? Well, if I offer an open platform, maybe there's all kinds of innovation. Suddenly, it makes my network really attractive. Right? So it's not obvious. None of these things are, are straightforward. So this is the overview, and I'll leave this up. Why don't we take um, a, uh, let's say, 10-minute break, and then I think um, we're supposed to go to um, 8.50. So I'll start the uh, internet routing congestion control and TCP stuff, but then I'll leave a little bit of time for discussion, um, and, and, and we can talk about that as we, as we head out. Okay, if you do have any questions about logistics or anything like that, feel free to catch me during the break, and I'll try to set up a trace route while, while we're on the break. So we'll come back uh, 8.20, I guess. So, ooh, it's not very easy to read, is it? But what I did was, um, so I'm actually using one of the things you just mentioned, but of course, the map suffers from the problem I just said that it's not very informative. So what, what this is doing is um, you, connect, you test a connection from, here it says this server, and the site is visualroute.visualware.com. It's actually much, much more instructive if you do it from your own home out to, uh, out, out to somewhere in the internet. But um, anyway, I, I couldn't get to the Stanford server to let me do that, so I'm going to use this for now instead. So from the server to www.stanford.edu. Now they know where their own server is, which is the first thing here, and it says it's in Ashburn, Virginia. Let's see if I can make this any bigger. No, it's a, this is a Java applet, so unfortunately I can't make the resolution any higher. So it says it's in Ashburn, Virginia. It goes through a whole bunch of things, and the last thing here is www.stanford.edu, right, which is one of the Stanford web servers. And what this is tracing is all the nodes on the internet that it passes through on the way to Stanford. It's actually a good place to start because we're going to go over exactly what the process of internet routing is. How do you discover and send packets along paths? Um, now, the, the thing I want you to notice, and, and somebody asked me this, you know, will traffic pass through the exchange? Well, this is PAIX, and that is exactly Palo Alto Internet Exchange. Okay? So what happened from here to here is that it passed through that exchange, and eventually then it goes in through... Um, um, what is, let's see, Scenic is, is it one of the ISPs that's used there? Or is it one of the nodes that they've leased fiber from? Not sure. So, and then eventually enters a, a Stanford server and then is connected to the web server here. Right? So um, if you do other uh, traces like this, particularly from home, and I encourage you to, you know, um, it's easy to download a small trace route uh, program, so I'll see if I can get one that you can use on Windows programs, uh, Windows machines. If you do a trace route, um, you'll, find you know, you'll, you'll find how you get from Comcast or, D or SPC or so on to other places. I used to live in Boston, and one interesting thing was if I wanted to go from Comcast to MIT, there was uh, one evening when there was a network failure. Uh, but not the kind of network failure that would be obvious to me. It only became obvious when I had to do things at my MIT computer. And what ended up happening, I did a trace route. I discovered that because of the failure, Comcast actually was sending all my traffic back to Chicago and then back to Boston again even though I lived a mile and a half from MIT. Right? So these kinds of interesting things can happen when the network goes wrong in strange ways. Um, just because of the way the, both the contracts are and the physical connectivity are, you can find packets going all over the place. Right? So let's try to find out a little bit about exactly how the internet accomplishes its magic of routing. So in this lecture, uh, we'll talk about um, IP and TCP in particular, and then uh, UDP, which is the user datagram protocol, 
uh, and then look ahead. So um, I think I'll do you know a decent part of this lecture. So I see it's 8:24 right now. I'll talk for probably about um, uh, 10 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes, and then and then open up for questions and discussion, more discussion, and uh, and then wrap up before we go to next lecture. So this is the picture we saw at the beginning of the last uh, piece that. The internet is a packet switching architecture. Packets originate at, at nodes at the end and move through routers on their way to a destination. The question is, how does that happen, right? It does seem slightly puzzling that somehow this router knew, without being next to my computer, somehow knew to send traffic to this router to get it on. So how does it do that? Well, this is the function of the internet protocol. So when you see IP, you know, there's, there's no mystery behind it. That's what IP does. The IP protocol is responsible for making sure the network knows where to send packets to get them close to the destination. Okay. And how does it do that? Well, um, the key sort of object that a router holds is what's called a routing table. Right? A routing table says, look at a packet and see what destination it has. And I, you know, I keep flipping website on my computer here, which isn't very helpful, I guess. But um, anyway, see what the destination is. See what the next router is on the path to that destination and keep track of what the distance to the destination is. Now, you, it's not obvious why you need this last thing. So we'll come back to that in a second. It's obvious why you need this, right? The routing table has to tell a router how to get to any destination in the internet. If it doesn't, when you get a packet, if you don't see the destination in the table, what are you going to do with the packet? There's nothing you can do, so you just drop it. So most routers in the internet have to know something about how to reach destinations anywhere in the internet. Now, there's an enormous number of destinations Okay, um, um, internet-wide, um, and in principle, you know, so those of you have, that have seen an IP address inside your, your computer, it's made up of uh, a group of four numbers, each one of which can be zero, between 0 and 255, right? Um, so uh, the, the, um, the uh, range of um, uh, possible internet addresses, then, is any grouping of four numbers that are between 0 and 255, it turns out that's 2 to the 32nd, okay? 32 bits worth of data, or 2 to the 32nd, which is over 4 billion. Right? So there's an enormous number of internet addresses available in principle, but a very, very small percentage of that internet address space is actually, um, uh, is actually in use. Um, I should say, despite that fact, although a small amount is in use, it's all been allocated effectively, or a very large amount has been allocated. And it's, it's very much like circuit switching. There's a lot of capacity that's been allocated already, even though major parts of it might be just sitting around unused. So typically, a, a, there won't be every destination here. It'll just group together major chunks of the internet into just one sort of compressed label um, and, and send um, anything that's going into anything under that heading, it'll send to whatever's in this column, the next hop. Okay? So I, I said next router here. A common word for sort of one link in the internet is a hop. So you'll see me using that a couple times as I go through this. Here's an example. When I say two hops, I mean two links. Right? So here's a picture, and, and this is why I need to keep track of that two. So that's what I want to get to now. Why do I keep track of the two? Well, the internet doesn't just keep track of whether there's a path to the destination. It actually keeps track of what it thinks of as a good path to the destination. How does it do that? Well, right now, suppose that this is the path that is being used to get to here. Okay, so there's one, two, three. Um, uh, connections from here to the website. And um, on the other hand, there's also another connection from this router to router C. So if you just look at this picture and all links, if they were equal, 
you would think 2 is better than 3. So why wouldn't it just send this way instead of that way? There's one less point of failure and probably less delay, all those sorts of arguments. So in the internet, what happens is every router just periodically will tell all its neighbors what its routing table looks like. So in particular, for a given destination, this router will say, how far away am I, am I from the website? He'll tell router A, I'm one hop away. Okay, so that's the first thing that happens. It says, I'm one hop away from this, this computer. Um, so for the moment, I want you to just think of it sort of abstractly as a, a link. There's, there's a link, a cable, that runs from this router to this computer. Okay? Uh, physical distance is a very good point. And in the internet itself, uh, what typically happens is that these numbers, instead of one hop, will be related to distance. Um, so uh, what you might see is that this is a router in Chicago, this is a computer in New York, this is a router in San Francisco. The relative lengths of these links will be, will be scaled in proportion to the distances between them. But um, for simplicity's sake, it's easier to just think of all links as being exactly the same length and uh, treat it as one. Okay, so he says I'm one hop away. Well, what does router A do? It says, okay, instead of using this three-hop connection, I'm going to use this two-hop connection instead. And this cycle continues. Now, obviously, the best you can do in this kind of picture is to be one hop away. Right? So the question is, if you are one hop away, would you ever in your routing table have a connection which is more than one hop to website? It seems on the surface you wouldn't. If you ever looked at router C's routing table, it would say, to get to website, use the direct link, and I'm only one hop away. But what if this link fails? Right? If this link fails, the next thing router C will do is it'll realize the link has gone dead. It periodically sort of tests across the link to see if it's alive. If the link goes, goes dead, then it'll use one of its neighbors, maybe somebody out in space here, that happens to be connected to the website or has a path to the website, and use that instead of the direct link. All right? And this sort of resiliency of the internet is one of the reasons that routing is so successful it sort of naturally responds to changes in the network and takes care of making sure that this local exchange of messages always allows every router to find a path to the destination. Right? Does, does this make sense uh, sort of at a vague level? So the main idea here is, you know, what, there's two main things I want you to take away. One is that routing uses only local messages. You just exchange local information to develop these tables. But the other is that it is very responsive to changes in the underlying fabric of the network. When links fail, even when routers fail, the routing tables are dynamically updated over time to make sure that new routes are found. Now, in the meantime, if this link fails, before he finds a new path, everything that's coming into him and destined for the website is lost. And the network doesn't guarantee anything about that. The network never says to you when you inject packets in, you know, don't worry, if this router deep in the middle of the network goes down, I'll make sure that it's not a problem for you. You have, to, you, you have to appreciate that it's amazing to think that there's essentially zero guarantees provided when you put a packet on. Uh, you know, I can't emphasize that point enough. Okay, so it's updated and, and um, the router says that, um, so let me just go back here. So originally we said that the, the destination is a website, the next router is router B, and router B's distance to the destination is two hops. All right, so that was these two. And after it got this new route, 
it updated the routing table. Router C is only one hop away from the destination. Right? And now it's only going to update this if it finds someone who is no hops away to the destination. That would mean he himself is next to the destination. Right? All right. So generally, um, the two features of the thing that I just showed you, one, that internet protocol routing is what's called shortest path routing. A packet follows the shortest path that's available to the destination. Right? And as, as was raised, a, a very excellent uh, a point, um, that shortest path doesn't necessarily mean in, in measured in links as I did here. It may be measured in distance terms. Now, next week, we're going to see that when you, you know, this, this picture of routing all assumes there's kind of one central manager of the network. So in particular, this picture of routing is the right picture if I was just looking at one network provider or one network. But what happens when I'm routing across networks? What happens when traffic goes from Sprint to AT&T? Right? Then, what if they both don't have the same notion of distance? What if Sprint is measuring distance in miles, and AT&T is measuring distance in seconds? And for some reason, these happen not to be the same thing. Right? Um, so, so there's a lot of different things that can go wrong. What if, actually, from Sprint's point of view, it's best to get traffic as fast as possible into AT&T's network? even if that's not the shortest thing it could do. Right? That can really break this picture of shortest path routing, so we'll see that next time. Um, the other thing is that each router only stores information about the next point on the way to the destination, not the entire path. This means when I hand that packet off, I'm trusting that guy, the next guy, to deliver the packet. I know nothing about what the packet does after that. I don't know anything about the path it's taking, nor do I have any control over the path it's taking. This is often called what's, what's known as destination-based routing. In particular, in the internet, the source of traffic exercises no control over where it goes. Okay? So that's a really important thing to understand. It's very rare, if you compare it to the telephone picture, the circuit-switched picture, when I built my own connection to the destination with a, with a wire, I knew everything I put on that wire ended up out the other side. So I knew the path it was taking, it was going down this wire. But here in the internet, you don't control the path the traffic you put on the network takes. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so um, I, I, I was just talking a little bit about this, that routes may be chosen based on things like business policy rather than shortest path. And, and we'll talk a little about that next time. Um, also, inside a network itself, you can actually see variations away from this routing architecture. In particular, oftentimes, Providers may use what's called traffic engineering, and I don't want to get into too much detail on this, but traffic engineering is basically the process of altering the way that routing is done inside, inside the network from the standard IP specification so that you can shape where traffic is going. Now, why might you want to shape where traffic is going? One example, um, when people are waking up and going to work on the East Coast, people on the West Coast are still asleep. So if it's 9 a.m. on the East Coast and markets are about to open, and network load is increasing in New York. Um, in particular, network load is increasing traveling to New York, but servers in San Francisco are quiet, routers are quiet, capacity is quiet running cross-country. It may make sense to ship packets back to San Francisco and then back to New York instead of up and down the East Coast because there's all this capacity lying dormant, even though that's not quote-unquote short. Right? So that's a process of traffic engineering. How is it usually accomplished? Usually the way it's accomplished is actually just by altering the notion of distance that's used inside the protocol. You said miles, I said, you know, links, but the protocol allows us to express either. 
you just put a number in on a link to say how long it is. So if I change what those numbers are, then suddenly a link that looked like it was really long across the country could look really short. There's no reason that, you know, there's no reason that the router has to know how many miles the link really takes. Okay? So that's, that's the, the form of traffic engineering that can be used. Um, and so <coughs> I guess I've pretty much said all of this already, that the internet protocol finds and disseminates the routes that are available. And the definition of packet routing really is exactly this next hop forwarding that we talked about. So since I said all this, I guess I won't dwell on that again. Um, just about, uh, just about want to stop here. I guess I'll, I'll preview what I'm going to say about TCP next time, which is that notice that the internet protocol guarantees nothing about packet delivery. In particular, it doesn't say anything about what happens if this router drops a packet, right? What happens? When that packet's dropped, the internet protocol specification says nothing. It just says the packet's dropped. We move on. We look at the next packet. Why might a packet be dropped? Well, I talked about the fact that a router might fail, or a link might fail. But there's actually reasons that a packet might be dropped even when everything is fully operational. If you want, you can think of these routers as having buckets uh, that, that are placed at the ends of each of these arrows. And what they do is they take in water from the buckets, and then they push it out wherever it's supposed to go. Okay? But the problem is a bucket is only so high. And what if it fills before you can actually get the water out? There's a service rate at which you can get water out here. There's an arrival rate at which water is coming in. But if you can't serve water as fast as it's coming into you, then, well, there's nothing you can do. Right? And so, um, in this picture, it's somewhat simplistic because you would never set up a router where the outgoing link was slower than the incoming link if there were only two links like this. But in general, routers have many incoming links and many outgoing links. So you can have a situation where all the traffic coming in on all the links all wants to go out on the same link but there's just not enough capacity available to handle it. So then the incoming bucket overflows, right? And when the incoming bucket overflows, any packets that overflow over the top are just dropped. So that's even, that's normal operation. That's actually completely in spec. Nobody would think of that as a failure. Yeah? So if I'm the sender, mm -hmm. how am I advised what the problem is? So that's, that's exactly what TCP is for. And so, uh, yeah, uh, well, I want to, I guess I wanted to have a little bit of discussion, but since I have a couple of minutes, I'll just I'll I'll, uh, I'll, I'll I'll preview this point. So routing is distributed, which is I mean that's the key point of that slide. And when when an engineer uses the word distributed, what they mean is there's no central authority who kind of knows everything about where all packets are going in the internet. Okay, and as a result, because you know it's it's only based on these local decisions. There's no global authority that handles routing everywhere. There's nobody who really takes responsibility for a drop of a packet in the middle of the network. Right? So who takes responsibility? Well, obviously you care if you sent the packet, and your potentially a receiver cares. So um, the reason that the network does not handle reliable delivery is because, broadly speaking, in the internet, the, the principle that was applied was that functionality that can only really be provided at the ends of the network should not be put in the middle. And we'll explain why this holds for reliability in a second. The thing I want to emphasize is that in the, original in the original design, the network was not responsible for reliable delivery of packets because of this principle. So this principle is what's called the end-to-end -end argument and is one of the underlying principles that drove the creation of the protocol suite uh, for the internet. So here's an example. Okay, suppose the path to the destination is A to B to C to D. So the argument goes, the functionality of reliably delivering packets from A 
to D is something that it doesn't make sense to put in the middle of the network. Now, why is that? Well, suppose that B was made responsible for making sure that any packet that it got here, that got up to here, and then got lost somewhere on this path, had to be retransmitted until they were safely received. Okay, suppose B was made responsible for that after he got a packet. But the problem is, it's useless for B to be doing that if C has failed, because then all packets are going to be lost anyway. So B sets about retransmitting all these extra packets, but if C has failed, then the fact that B is doing this is pointless. Okay? So the problem is that any one of these nodes doesn't have enough visibility to know who else has failed in the path. So if you have a failure up here, so suppose this link you know, experiences a loss, and B thinks, uh-oh, there was a loss there, you better retransmit that. But then C goes down, well, it's going to have to be retransmitted anyway. Now imagine a path with 10 nodes, of which three have failed. Well, you're just going to keep retransmitting over and over and over again without any success. So the point is that, from the point of view of the end-to-end -end argument, there's really only two people who know if a packet was successfully transmitted, if, if there was a failure anywhere on the path or not, and that's A and D. Right? Nobody else in the middle can know the entire path by definition. So since A and D are the only ones who know, here's the process. Why not let A send packets? Don't make these guys responsible for anything. And then just have D tell A whether he got the packet or not. Now you can get into this loop here where D tells A and what if that's lost, right, and, and so on. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that next time. And, and there's, you know, that's, that's an ancient, that, that's the kind of problem that had to be solved back when armies were communi communicating in the Middle Ages. So it has nothing really to do with, uh, with the internet. But, but we'll talk about exactly how it's accomplished in the internet next time. But this is the basic principle. And the end-to-end -end arguments, you know, they, they've been overused, misapplied. There's been a lot of legal debate that involves the end-to-end -end arguments. I want to emphasize here this network address translation that we talked about a second ago is an example of the end-to-end -end argument being broken in this following sense. The end-to-end -end argument says that, well, you should provide functionality where it's most naturally, you know, provided, when it's most naturally provided at the ends of the network, that's where you should put it. But network address translation puts this box in the middle that's translating from traffic coming from the internet over to the four computers on the other side. And from the internet's point of view, that box looks like one computer, but from your four computers' point of view, they see the entire internet on the other side. And this, you know, it's raised sort of a, a real philosophical debate, well, is a network address translation box bad because, you know, suddenly we don't have this pure end-to-end -end reliability, you know, there's a translation going on in the middle that seems to violate this principle, the reality is I don't think it matters that much. I mean, I, I think the end-to-end -end arguments are important to know. I think it's important that they drove the design. But the reality is network address translation filled a very important need, which is bringing massive scalability of the number of addresses available to the average user. Right? And that's a great thing. I think that's a useful thing. I think the right argument is not, you know, just on a philosophical basis, is it a bad thing? The right argument is the fact that the network address translation box is making this transformation of the actual data in the middle, is this something which is introducing a new vulnerability? Is this something which is introducing a lack of robustness into the network? All right? Those are the right questions to ask, not you know, because of a philosophical argument, this is not the right thing to do. Okay? All right, so I'll, I'll put up also the paper on the end-to-end -end arguments online. It's a, it's a sort of old and famous paper about the internet that if you're curious about this sort of thing, it might be interesting to look at. Um, but um, I think you know, I'll stop here for now. We'll talk about TCP next time. 
and uh, TCP is essentially you know to do this reliable delivery. So uh, let me ask you know what are the interesting yeah go ahead. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's a really interesting question. So, um, you know, I, I I guess perhaps the best thing to do is to say maybe preview what your homework assignment for the class is going to be. I mean, as 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 far as there is anything like homework, so the. the um, the the assignment for you know the the four weeks and actually I wonder if, no I, I, no actually I'll I'll mention that next time but the, the basic idea is I want you to think about what the positions of the sort of four you know example players in this debate would be uh, should be in this in in, in the uh, in the policy arena so Netflix is one uh, um, Google is another uh, AT and T or AT and T SBC is is a third and then Akamai is a fourth okay, and those those are kind of four example players that, that I think um, it's useful to think about. I mean, I, I think from your perspective, you can pick someone else if you want. But I think each of these four fills a different niche in the, in the industry. Now, talking about Netflix, the kind of question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what architecture does the future internet have for Netflix to be able to sustain a business delivery model that, that involves streaming video, right? Well, one of the things that Netflix really wants, and, and not surprisingly that they're, you know, they're one of the vociferous lobbyists for, in favor of network neutrality, is they need the ability to reach an end user without being taxed for their content, right? So suppose that Netflix was the dominant video provider, you know, video on demand provider, let's say, and everybody knew this, Comcast and SPC and all these companies, uh, Comcast and AT&T and, and Time Warner Cable, everybody knew that. Well, if they could somehow differentiate and tax Netflix's traffic, the natural thing to do is to basically squeeze all the profit out of Netflix because there's nobody stopping you. I mean, Netflix can't survive without, you know, you know, without, uh, without, um, uh, without access to ultimately what are called the eyeballs, uh, you and me, you know, the people who are going to watch the movies. Now, why does that work? Well, one of the reasons that, that that's potentially a viable strategy for the access providers is that in many cases they have a local monopoly. Um, there's a lot of places where you can't get DSL, you can only get cable. There's a lot of places where there's only one of them operating in the first place. There's a lot of places where even though there's two of them, they're operating with effectively monopolistic practices where they, you know, they, they can sort of unilaterally make decisions without very much competitive consequence. Um, so this raises an important regulatory question, which I think ultimately comes down to two things. One is how do you incentivize investment in the network infrastructure? You know, the argument that the network providers make is for us to invest, we have to be able to get money from traffic that benefits from the investment. So if SPC or AT&T installed fiber optic cable to the home, and that was suddenly used for a lot of video, well, they better be getting money from that video to be able to reimburse the investment. The argument of Google and, and, and Netflix and so on is that, well, the internet has sustained itself and become so important as part of public infrastructure because it supports innovation in probably the most dramatic way that of, of anything, any system that we've experienced, the internet has enabled innovation on just a massive scale. Um, and, you know, they argue that that kind of innovation is going to be stifled if every time there's an innovator, uh, they face the hurdle of getting past this kind of gatekeeper. Um, so I think that the, the thing you need, to, you, you need to sort of develop then is a sense of seeing through the polarization of the debate 
to what are really the underlying issues at stake? What are kind of the fundamental principles that you can't get around? And what are the things that are really just sort of hot air that are being blown around the issue? I'm going to try to help you do that. I mean, I do think there's a lot of truth to the point that you won't make an investment if you don't see a return. It's, tr it's a fundamental business principle. And if, if these companies will invest in capacity, they expect to see a return. So the question is, I think, how are they going to make that return? And you know, I want to get into these, these kinds of questions of asking, is there a model moving forward for Netflix and AT&T that sustains both, sustains this prop, uh, property of innovation, and yet make sure that investment is, 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 uh, is profitable and sustainable. Yeah. But, but it's more of a question than it is an answer, so we'll think about it over the next few, yeah. On, on, on the surface, it would certainly seem that Netflix ought to pay a higher price, you know, because they're just gobbling up all the capacity. Yeah, that certainly seems right. And I think um, one of the questions that, that does raise is, is quantity the right measure of cost? It has been for a very long time on the internet, but let me give you some examples of why it might not be. So. Um, Let's say you get a spam message in your mailbox that's typically on the order of 10 kilobytes. Um, let's suppose that you place a credit card transaction. That's probably not very far off. Maybe, you know, far less actually. Probably maybe a kilobyte or maybe even two. So we're talking about things that are roughly the same size. Clearly one of them is far more valuable than the other, right? Uh, now let me give you another example where, um, you know, where there's um, uh, potentially, you know, um, a high quantity of flow in one direction, but that doesn't correspond with the direction that, that money should flow in. So suppose again that you're someone like Comcast, and on the other side of you uh, is a company like, um, like Netflix, actually. Okay? Well, notice that um, typically you know, um, what would happen is, in this situation, Netflix wants to be able to reach the consumers because it's going to get subscription fees from them. So they're willing to pay Comcast to be able to get into the network. Now there's an opposite example where that company might be someone like CNN. And in this situation what often happens is Comcast would be willing to pay CNN because it won't be able to get customers unless they have access to that content. And it's not easy to resolve that. It's not easy to resolve the directionality of where money should go, right? It all depends on the relative value to the end user and to the company of transmitting traffic across that boundary. And I think this, you know, the hardest thing, the hardest thing about the internet, I was just talking to a graduate student about this today, is that it's very hard to identify the direction that money should flow in, let alone the amount. And if you can't even get the direction right, imagine, I mean, how many times in your daily life do you have trouble identifying who should be paying who, let alone how much? And on the internet, this problem arises all the time. So until we get that straight, you know, we're always going to face a problem with these issues. So this is, you know, in response to your question, that's one of the critical things that we have to understand. What direction should money be flowing in, let alone how much? I, I don't think that economists, for example, often concern themselves with how much. And that presupposes an answer to the question, what direction? And I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Yeah? In many of the examples that you gave, you know, for example, in the traffic engineering, yeah. uh, if you have an example of routing through the East Coast, in theory, it doesn't have to be within the country, right? Um, uh, wait, sorry. So, in you mean... Theory, let's say, from Boston? Yeah. Right, right, right. Example, right. What I'm asking is, in theory, yep. these are not constrained by any... Oh, yeah. No, no, no. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely not. But, but there are very interesting disputes that arise as a result. Um, what I mean, my next question goes on. As more and more international, uh, you know, it's yeah. globalized, 
Yep. Yeah. It's really incredible. So, since you raised the question, I'm going to tell a couple anecdotes about that. So, uh, one is that um, the U.S. has a very—I mean, as in many things, I guess—but but in particular in this space, they have a very bad history of, of relations with the rest of the world on on internet uh, policy. So, one example was that when the internet first started, obviously, as you said, it was very North American centric, and um, what this meant was that both content and eyeballs were frequently located in the U.S. So. If you were a European network provider, it was very important to have a U.S. connection. So what would the U.S. do? Well, it would say, um, you know, if, if there was a, uh, a content provider in Europe, then it would say, well, we have all the eyeballs, so you should probably pay us for that connection. But if there was, you know, a cable provider in Europe, it would say, oh, well, you know, we have all the content, so you should probably pay us. And it just started collecting fees on both sides, both <laughs> sides of this, of this, of this coin. Um, there, and, and sort of examples get more egregious where what would end up happening is that, uh, and I, I guess I'm going to be using a little bit of language here that foreshadows next time, but I mentioned that you can have two different AS numbers for the same organization, one for US, one for Europe. What this might mean is that um, I might let someone connect for free to my European number, but charge them if they want to connect to the US number. Even though in principle they could reach me in the US through that European number, I would force them to pay me if they wanted to connect to the U.S. to the U.S. network as well, and um, you know, so all different kinds of regulations like this, this led to things like traffic being sort, you know, moved from Asia to the U.S. back to Asia for something as simple as just an email or something like that. Um, so as we move forward, what's been happening is certainly that there's a lot more distribution of connection. It's far less the case that the U.S. has this kind of you know hegemony over the, f the rest of the world in terms of internet policy and, and who should be connected where and how much they pay. Um, it's also led to, you know, so that's at the network level. The network is becoming something that's much more, uh, much more sort of homogenous worldwide. Um, there's also very different policies for the network in the rest of the world. Um, whether the network is centrally regulated or not, you know, in many countries it's centrally regulated. In the U.S. it's obviously not. This has a major impact on the kinds of negotiations that are carried out. You know, so that means a privately owned provider in the U.S has to negotiate with the government in other countries, and that always gets contentious. And then moving up one level, at the content level, there's all kinds of interesting problems this creates. Because the internet is sort of content agnostic, as you saw in my routing examples, it just forwards to the destination. It doesn't, in principle, it's not supposed to look inside the packet. Again, this part of the end-to-end -end argument, really, the middle of the network should not be looking at the data. There's no particular reason it needs to. Its job is just to deliver it. It doesn't provide any other guarantees. But you know, when the Chinese say we don't want certain content moving across our boundaries, um, when, when Middle Eastern countries say that we find certain content offensive, it shouldn't be moving across our boundaries, then it's not so simple to say the internet is content agnostic. And that forces, it forces owners of networks to violate the usual principle of not looking inside the packet and install hardware and software that can actually inspect data. Um, it forces disputes like the one that Google had with China over exactly this point of uh, web searches being run on, run from China. Um, it's a very interesting debate. I think that, you know, maybe one of the things I'll leave you with, I guess I'm just five minutes over time, so I should stop. Um, but one of the things I'll leave you with is that uh, we often talk about things like needing to install security infrastructure on the network so that we can stop, for example, terrorists from attacking the network. But I think the difficulty with that argument is that network technology is, is, is sort of ignorant of policy. And so the same language that says we need to install this infrastructure to protect ourselves from terrorists is 
the, the, same, you know, the, the same technology can be applied to language that says a totalitarian government needs to install this to protect itself from rebel insurgents. Okay? And so it's very hard, I think, to attach a policy meaning to security infrastructure. It's very hard to say I'm going to change the underlying technology because of this good versus evil problem. Because worldwide, good versus evil can change roles as you, as you move across boundaries. And this, I think, is one of the biggest things the internet struggles with. I mean, it's not really a technical issue it, alone. It's something that, is, is when you implement a technology, you have to ask yourself, well, what is, what is the sort of policy uh, subjectiveness that I'm applying to it? And most, most people don't think about that. So I think that's an interesting, interesting topic, certainly. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.